So let's do verses 1 through 8. Who can read Amos 3, 1 through 8 for us? Jonathan, thank you. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which you brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? All right, so uh, what is the basis of God's accusation, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? The basis of God's accusation against his people. Yeah, John. Okay. Well, I mean, he's declaring them to be his chosen people. Okay. So if we take those two things together, I picked you out of all the families of the earth, and how have you responded? Rampant iniquity, right? So probably take those two things together, all right? Um, I've chosen you, and this repeated idea of I've been with you the whole way, right? I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Here's all your iniquities. It'd be kind of like, um, I don't know, let's say that you decided to be generous and you bought uh, someone a car and then they turned around and they stole yours. Like that, it's a stupid example, but like that kind of response. So we, we're, we're showing extreme ingratitude and if, if, if we react negatively against a silly example like that, how much greater is this reaction against God who has done everything for them, right? God's given them food. God's protected them from their enemies. God's done miracles to lead them through the wilderness. God has set his favor on this group of people, and they have time and again repaid him with ingratitude and backstabbing and disobedience and going after other gods. All right, what, what do you think is going on in verses 3 through 6? What's this series of questions about? Okay, what's sort of the expected answer to all these questions? Yeah, like, you do, these things don't just happen. Does a lion roar when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion growl unless he's captured something? No. Does a bird fall in a trap when there's no bait? No. So here's this expected uh, series of questions. If, I, if this has happened, then this is the logical conclusion. So what's the conclusion we're supposed to draw from it in verses 7 and 8? Mary? God means what he says. Okay, God means what he says. All right. Has God spoken to the prophets? Yes. yes. If God has spoken to them, 
Do they have any choice but to speak what he said? No. Um, there's this interesting concept, I think it's several times in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New, about the idea of uh, the burden of the prophets, like here's this weight or burden or message that is not easy that God has laid on them. Uh, Paul, I think, put it this way in the New Testament. He says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel, that there is a sense of compulsion, not like a, how do I put it, not in a psychiatric kind of way, right? Like, I've got to scrub this so it's super clean. Not that kind of compulsion, but in a, um, in a like, if I don't do this, the whole, the whole purpose of my life is null and void, right? That kind of idea. And so I think Amos is sort of representing that idea. If God has spoken it, whether you like to hear it or not, I've, I've got to say it to you, right? So kind of setting up all that. So then here comes the message. Uh, someone read for us maybe 9 through 15. Who'd do that? 9 through 15? Evan? Okay, thank you. Okay. So, Ashdod in Egypt is what? Anybody remember? Think back to what we were talking about in um, although it might not have been listed there. Uh, so, uh, the clue would be in chapter 1, verse 8. group of people lives in Ashdod. Chapter 1, verse 8. <coughs> Philistines, right? Okay? So the Philistines is one group of people that God is summoning. Okay? What's, and then the land of Egypt, right? And then what is he telling them to do? In verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Basically, like, be spectators almost like at a football game, right? And watch the spectacle that's about to take place, right? So he says, you pagan nations, come be witnesses or observers or spectators against and of my people. See their great tumults and oppressions. 
And what is God's accusation in verse 10? Chapter 3, verse 10, against the people of Israel. Yeah? They're hoarding up violence and devastation specifically, right? So, um, they've forsaken the right. They're, they're going toward oppression and uh, kind of going back to some of these accusations that we see in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Uh, they sell the righteous for money, needy for a pair of sandals. They um, turn aside the way of the humble, right? There's sort of this imagery of oppression that's tied up with immorality that is tied up with pagan worship, right? So that's this strange image that on garments taken as pledges implied from the poor, they stretch out probably a, a euphemism for immorality beside every altar. So this would be connected with idolatry. So there's this junction of oppressing the poor, committing immorality, and doing so in a mockery of God's true worship as they worship idols. So God calls the pagan nations as witnesses against them, basically, and says, Philistines, the Philistines, right, were the moral upstanding people in that district, right? No. The Philistines, we would tend to think, are way worse than the Israelites, right? And the people of Egypt have done all sorts of incursions and battles and oppression against the people of Israel. But God is saying to them, hey, you guys come look and see how my people are behaving. And if God has to call a pagan nation against his own people, there's something seriously wrong. Right? You know the thoughts on that real quick before we go to the what God is going to do at the end of the chapter? I think it's talking to the Philistines and the Egypt because he says, proclaim in the citizens and say, assemble yourselves in the mountains of Samaria. And then it refers to the people of Israel in the third, third person, verse 10, they do not know how to do what is right. Well, this was confusing me because if I was taking it as the people of Philistia that are gathering, assembling yourselves, then I was thinking that maybe it's saying that God is talking to the people of Israel and saying, that, oh, it's weird. I'm saying God is calling these two pagan nations as witnesses against his people because they're behaving worse than the pagan nations. And I think that's the thing that would make sense in the context based on what he's just said. I'm prophesying against you, chapter 2, 6, and 7, for your transgressions you will be punished. Now, here's the irony. Who else was in the list of the ones who will be punished? The Philistines were in the list of the ones who are going to be punished. But God's basically saying, you're all guilty, but I want you to stand as witnesses against my people because there's, going back to chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Israel knew better, right? Any other thoughts on that? So I'm pretty sure he's talking to the Philistines and the Egyptians and saying, you be witnesses against my people. Okay, moving on then to the end of the chapter. What's going to happen, verse 11? One of these enemies surrounding the Israelites will attack them. Sure. And he's going to pull down their strength, like pull down the walls of their cities and loot their, their citadels. 
which the whole point of a citadel or a fortress is what? That you can defend yourself against attacking enemies, and God's saying, not going to help you. It's going to get destroyed and looted and plundered anyway. And then the imagery in 12 is actually interesting to me because he says, just as the, sh the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, I think I, I read that and I was like, I'm expecting the second part of it to be, and then they're saved. Like there's this remnant that's saved. But what is he saying at the end of the verse? Is, let me say this. Is the snatching away positive or negative? negative? It's negative. It's you're going to be snatched away for judgment, right? So it's not, uh, I guess if we were going to do a New Testament parallel, it's not 1 Thessalonians 4 where the church is taken up to be with Jesus. It's 1 Thessalonians 5 and parallel to Matthew 24 where there's two women in the field, one's taken, the other left, and so forth. Like There are those who are swept away by the judgment is basically the image, I think. And so then, um, verses 13 to 14, what's going on there? What's the significance of the altars of Bethel and so, so forth? What's the false worshiping system that they have set up? Okay. Yeah, where did they set up um where did they set up the false system of worship? Yeah, so uh Samaria, um I was looking here to see the um I was trying to see if I could see it on one of my maps here. I'm thinking if I recall correctly that Bethel is in southern Israel. Right. Okay, here we go. After the after Israel, Jeroboam made Bethel the chief sanctuary of the northern kingdom Israel. It's just north of Jerusalem. Yeah. So what's the what is the um what's the significance of the horns of the altar being cut off? What are the horns of the altar? Anybody remember? So in the temple, or the tabernacle, there were horns on the altar, and it was, there's a few interesting stories. For example, there were people who were um, supposed to be killed, like they had uh, committed, um, like they had murdered someone. And then, like this was around the time of David, and they ran to the temple, and they grabbed onto the altar, Right? I mean, this is not, I'm not trying to make light of it, but the closest example would be like when kids are playing tag, they're like, this is safe, right? Right? And David says, if he won't let go, kill him anyway, because God says he has to die because he's committed murder. And so um, David sends one of his mighty men to go capture the guy and basically execute him because he's committed murder of all these innocent people. Um, we see that happen more times in the books of Kings and Chronicles, 1st, 2nd Samuel. Um, but the, I think the irony part of it, too, is if the altar for your God is defaced in some way, like it's defiled or it's, you know, cut up or whatever, what does that imply about your God that you've been worshiping? Your God's weak, is a false God, that kind of thing. So if someone can come in 
Kind of like when uh, the Ark of the Covenant went around the Philistine camps and in their temples and their idols kept falling over and getting broken. If that same thing happens to the altar of the system of false worship that Jeroboam has set up, then um, he's basically saying, I'm going to break your system of false worship. So there's great houses referred to in verse 15, palaces and strongholds and all those sorts of things throughout the end of the chapter. God's saying none of it is going to survive. I think there's sort of this idea that we think, well, mm, like in, in some of the great uh, revolutions, when I say great, like notable is probably a better word, revolutions or uprisings in history, I think there's this idea, well, the people in the castles and the well-off people are going to be fine because they can kind of be insulated, right? And then you have something like the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror where basically they just went into the houses and they pulled them out and they cut all their heads off and they partied in their houses. And that's kind of the scene that we see here in this passage, right? Here's people who think that they're secure because they're the king or they're rich. Ironically, think about the people who are rich in this scenario. Why are they rich? They're rich because of their sin. And they think that their riches will insulate them from the consequences of their sin. And God is saying, your fortresses and your beautiful houses are not secure and are not insulation for you against the consequences of all the sin that you've done. Any thoughts more on chapter 3 before we go into chapter 4? I think maybe a quick point of application for us would be that um, as Americans, we tend to think that our strong economy or military or something like that can protect us against anything. But if we continue down a path of exalting evil and um, taking advantage of those who are weak and all of those sorts of things, and that applies to a lot of different things, right? It's easy to pick on issues like abortion or exalting immorality, but there's a whole host of issues that span both political part, all the political parties and all of the, um, all of the different perspectives of the people in our country. If, if people were to, to look at our country as a whole and say, are we a Christian nation, I think we would have to conclude, regardless of the origins of our country, the way that we have behaved for the last however many years has by and large been against what God wants and in sort of similar ways to what the Israelites are doing, which is to take advantage of people, to worship false gods, and to, in many cases, live in immorality as part of the whole process. And so um, I think it's easy to look at a passage like Amos 3 and say, that's way over there, has nothing to do with us. Um, to the extent that we individually, in our homes and marriages and Relationships with people are tempted to things like um, pornography and immorality and um, uh, taking advantage of people. When you say taking advantage of people. Uh, this is not like a super weighty example, but something I've thought about sometimes. Sometimes you'll see someone posting something for sale, and you can tell that the person's maybe getting evicted or having to move suddenly because of financial situation. I think there's a moment in which we might be tempted, I mean, the part of me that's a little bit of a cheapskate would be tempted to say, hey, you know, you're asking 50 bucks for this, but you're kind of desperate, I could get it for 25. 
And I think that that attitude of conniving and all that is not the same thing as the oppression that we see there, but it's trending that direction, right? And so I think we have to be careful and watch out for taking advantage of people that we know are in desperate situations and trying to profit off of their difficulties. Um, any other examples come to mind? Any other thoughts on this relative to what it has to do with us? Sure. Um, do you have an example? Uh, probably a dozen. I okay. Mean, see somebody on the side of the road not sure. stopping. Sure. When you have the ability to, to potentially help. Um, you know, it's hard to, to judge the hearts of those begging, but we see people in need all the time. Sure. And yeah. we're willing to be inconvenienced or sacrifice to help them. It's easy to rationalize, I think, for example, oh, if I give money to someone at the corner, they're just going to go use it to buy alcohol or drugs. Or if I stop and help this person on the side of the road, they're going to rob me and steal my car and whatever else. And the reality is there is risk involved. The, the church I was at for a good while before I came here, the, down in inner city, um, the pastor's son stopped to help someone on the side of the road, got clipped by a semi and was in the hospital in a coma for a while and lots of other things going on. He's doing okay now, but he's got lasting things from that, like they had to burn out some of the nerves in his neck or shoulder because it was just constant pain and that kind of thing. And so, you know, there are, there are involved with those sorts of things. Um, there's people in our own church who've taken in people who've had lots of struggles, whether it be with or just, you know, bad family situation or whatever. And I the challenge is the more, the more that, we feel like we're doing well the more that we don't risk it by doing things that can um, I don't know this is a dumb example if you bought a new couch for 500 bucks you like I don't want to have people come over and spill food on whatever right it's a dumb example but the more that we are obsessed with the things that we possess and or like Bob said being unwilling to be inconvenienced it could be it could be any number of things right um, uh, Kelly's aunt didn't have power on like Thursday and Friday and she didn't tell us right away and then we went and uh, I ran over to check on her and it wasn't super convenient to go do that because um, Maggie was doing her max competition which is like uh, music and art and like oral readings and things for the Christian school so Maggie had all those events, and they kept changing the times on them because some of the schools didn't show up because of the ice and snow earlier in the week. And so between that and figuring out, and then we were going to drive up and see Sarah's family Friday night, so between that and trying to figure out, like, like getting everything together and then running over and doing that, it would have been really easy to say, well, you know, she'll probably be okay, but we can't have that attitude. And if it's easy for us to rationalize not helping people who are family, how much easier rationalize not helping people that we don't even know and we got to be wise about it right you know but you know your neighbors or people that you encounter on a daily basis there's probably people in that category that have needs that you and I can look for ways to minister to and so I think it's easy to say either we help people who are begging on the corner or we don't do anything at all right and there's a lot of stops along the way of things that we can do to try to help people 
And um, anyways, okay. Any other thoughts, real quick? Okay, let's go on to chapter four. Uh, four, one through five. How about four, one through five? Who can read that for us? Chapter four, Bob. Thanks. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, "Bring now that we may drink." The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through the breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Haman, declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and transgress, and Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings, make them known, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. All right. What's going on in these verses? Interesting imagery. Who is he uh, proclaiming the judgment against? Men or women? Women, okay. Uh, so what are we supposed to conclude from this? That we can call women. <laughs> that we can call women. Okay. Uh, that reminds me of a, of a joke I read. Somebody was, uh, his, his wife said something about like, hey, does this outfit make me look fat? And she texts him a picture. And then he writes back, and he tries to write no, but then autocorrect sends it, and he looks, and he's like, I'm in trouble because it said moo. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Um, why are they being compared to cows? Like, what was... Okay, so again, the idea is the animal that is... Think about Joseph's, not Joseph's dream, but Pharaoh's dream that Joseph interprets, right? There's seven fat cows and seven skinny cows, right? If you have fat cows, why are they fat? Because they've, they've eaten a lot, right? Why are these women having an opportunity to eat a lot? They were living in luxury and they weren't working very much. Right? They're oppressing the poor, right? Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say, bring now that we may drink. So the, the picture is basically like this, this, I'm here and just, keep bringing me food and drink and like whatever I want, right? This is not a commentary on health. This is not a commentary on being skinny versus fat. This, that's not the point of this. The point of this is not to say a particular body size or shape is the ideal. The point of this is to say the reason for their fatness and their luxury was because they oppressed the poor. So, what's interesting going on in verse 2? The taking you away with hooks idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, in my mind, I think it's one of two things. The taking away as though for slaughter, which is probably what's going on 
There's also the fact that nose rings were a common thing in the Middle Eastern culture. So there's almost this idea of just like uh, cattle have sometimes a ring in their nose and that would be like a thing that you would lead it along with. Basically, they're going to hook you by the nose and pull you along. That's probably too much of a stretch. I think Jonathan's point about the, the meat hooks and the fish hooks associated with slaughter is probably a better imagery. The being cast to Harman, Harman was kind of a remote region to the upper northwest of Israel. So the idea of basically being scattered and deported and all those sorts of things. All right. Why is God commanding them to transgress? Or what does he say is the way that they will transgress? Yeah. Right. But look at the end of verse 4. Sacrifices every morning, tithes every three days, thank offering from leavened, that which is leaven, free will offerings, make them known, for so you love to do. Right. Yeah, so there is, um, it's not wrong, it's, uh, well, the fact that they're doing it in the wrong place is wrong, right? But the act of sacrifice is not in and of itself wrong. The act of tithe is not wrong. They're doing it from leavened bread, like they're, they're doing the right thing, going through the motions. But you can't, Monday, go to your poor neighbor and say, you're starving, I'm going to take the coat off your back, and then come over here and say, hey God, look, got all the money for you. Because God doesn't want the money that you stole from the poor and bring it over here and give it to him and act like you're doing him a good turn. Uh... Someone want to read 6 through 13? I think we can finish this up today. 6 through 13? Sarah? Okay, thank you. Alright, so what's going on in verses 6 through, let's say start with 6, Verse. what's going on in verse 6? Yeah, cleanness of teeth, we're like, oh, they had good dental hygiene, that's not the point of it, right? 
The point of cleanness of teeth is you've got no food to eat, so there's nothing on your teeth, right? Uh, and part of the reason for that is number seven and eight. What's going on? Yeah, drought. No rain or sporadic rain, but not enough for everyone. And then also verse nine. Scorching wind. Yeah, so mildew is probably some kind of crop thing that um, destroys the grain, and then there's caterpillars and other things that eat it up. He sent a plague, verse 10, after the manner of Egypt. What does that mean? What were some of the plagues he sent on Egypt? Yeah, locusts, flies, gnats, boils, all those sorts of things, sudden death of livestock for no apparent reason, hail. So it could be any number of those things based on what we saw in Joel, most likely the locust kind of idea that ate up everything. He killed them by their enemies in verses 10 and 11. What's the accusation in the second part of verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11? What phrase does he say over and over again? You've not returned to me. Okay? So now what is he saying in verse 12? Last phrase there. That's not, that's a very ominous phrase, right? This is not Moses wanting to catch a glimpse of God's glory. This is a, you're about to meet your maker, get ready. And then it describes who he is. And this is the irony, kind of like... Um, you know how Jonah tries to run away from God and the sailors are like, who's your God? And Jonah's like, well, he's the one that made the whole world. Oh, so you can't run away from him, right? This one is, you have angered the God who forms mountains, creates the wind, and tells you what you're thinking, who makes the dawn happen and treads on the high places of the earth. That's the God that you've angered. That's the God you're about to meet. That should have been a terrifying thing for them because of their rebellion and stubbornness. And yet they continued not to repent over and over. So... Any thoughts on that? I think the fact that mm, these are all things that he kept, God kept doing over and over again to try to get their attention and they weren't paying attention is kind of like, it's, it's weird to say this in this passage, but it kind of also shows his mercy. Like, here I did something else, and I did something else, and I did something else. Like, I'm trying to get you to see, I'm trying to show you, and you're not paying attention. Like, eventually his mercy runs out when you're not following your commands and not Okay. If things are not going well in our lives, sometimes there's reasons for that that are along the lines of we're following God faithfully and as a result facing persecution. But sometimes what's going on when things are not going well in our lives is what Sarah was just talking about, this idea that God is trying to grab our attention and we would do well to pay attention to all the things that are going on. So when it comes to things like sickness, losing a job, unexpected, um, I don't know what you would call it, uh, incident seems too weak of a, oh, too weak of a word. Calamity. Calamity, yeah. <laughs> things just come up and you're like, what is going on? The, the reason for it is not automatically, I have sinned and God's trying to get my attention. But because that is sometimes the case, like we see here, we should at least consider that possibility and uh, examine ourselves.
Because I think it's easy for us to assume that we're Job, and sometimes we're the people of Israel going through things like Job did. Any other thoughts? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, sobering list of the things that went on in and among your people, that they had descended to the place that you call pagan nations around them as witnesses against them, that you gave them time and time again opportunity to repent, and they did not help our hearts not to be hardened like that, Help us not to be blind to the ways that we are seeking after our own desires. Amen.